The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Selecting Targeted Treatment for Pediatric and Adult Patients with Uncontrolled Moderate to Severe Asthma. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ATS 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Thank you all so much for joining us today. I'd like to welcome you here in the room, as well as our virtual audience, to our session, Selecting Targeted Treatment for Pediatric and Adult Patients with Uncontrolled Moderate to Severe Asthma. So I'd like to uh, make sure that you know who we are. So um, this is Dr. Bacarrier, my uh, co-speaker today, is the J.B. Robinson and John Moore Lee Chair in Pediatrics, Professor of Pediatrics, and Director for um, Pediatric Asthma Research at, uh, at Vanderbilt University right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm Monica Kraft. I'm, uh, I was at University of Arizona. I'm now the system chair at Mount Sinai Health System, the ICANN School of Medicine in New York. All right. So I think we've all really come to the realization uh, that asthma is a very heterogeneous disease. We don't have a one-size-fits-all approach. And as I like to say, I think it's a really great time to be in the field. There are so many options that we have for therapy, but also really for determining what kind of asthma our patients have in clinic. And there's a lot more in the pipeline around ways to do that. So I think it's a really exciting time to be able to offer a lot of options for our patients, especially with severe asthma. And we know because asthma is heterogeneous that there are many different kinds of asthma or phenotypes. And they might be a mixed eosinophil allergic. Then there may be an eosinophilic that's not allergic. Uh, then there could be a mixed, eosinophils and neutrophils. There's also a posse granulocytic, where there actually is very little inflammation at all. It's really all about structural changes in the airway. And then the neutrophil can also be a predominant cell in asthma. So there's a variety of, of inflammatory phenotypes, if you will. But really our goal is to, to sort out what is the endotype, what are the mechanisms driving the presentation of these phenotypes. And at this point in 2022, we have two big buckets. We have type 2 high and type 2 low, or type 2 and non-type 2, however you like to say it. And then under those umbrellas, we have some subphenotypes we'll talk about. So T2 high asthma, which is the, the one that's driven by eosinophils, can be driven by allergy-mediated IgE allergic reactions. Eosinophilic inflammation is key. There can be IL-13-mediated nitric oxide production, our favorite cytokines in type 2 asthma, or IL-4, 5, and 13. And then responsiveness to corticosteroids as well. And there's multiple types that fall under the, the, the type 2 asthma umbrella. And there can be, they, they're really manifested by our three favorite cytokines, as I mentioned. Although there's a lot of work being done also at the role of the airway epithelium that I'll mention shortly, also being really important in the development of this uh, type 2 asthma. And, and we have biomarkers at our disposal in the clinical arena to try to really help us define whether our patient has type 2 asthma or not. And I would say they're, they're, all, they're all fair. I mean, they each tell us a little different story. So I know personally I tend to use all of them in the clinic. And, of course, the three, the three we think about most are IgE, both total and specific, as well as exhaled nitric oxide and uh, blood eosinophils. And... There's different kinds of type 2 high asthma, and of course, one is the early onset pre-adolescence, which has a very strong atopic or allergic component, with generally a strong family history of atopic disease, and there can be overlap with other comorbid atopic conditions like allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, and it can present with mild to severe disease, 
with a variable course and can be exacerbated by obesity. And really, the beginning, this, this whole issue of the atopic march can start very early in life. And atopic dermatitis can be the, really the first manifestation of this march, often preceding the development of other atopic conditions, such as food allergies, asthma, and allergic rhinitis, as you can see in the figure. And we think it manifests about half of, of asthma patients in general, but you'd have to really, depends on who you read and who you talk to, but that's a rough estimate. But there's also a later onset of type 2 high asthma, and it really is manifested by very significant eosinophilia. It can be peripheral blood as well as uh, a sputum if you're able to measure sputum eosinophils. And allergy may or may not be a component. Much of the time, it really isn't the prominent driver. And it can be very severe from onset, and it's generally developing later in life after age 20 or so. Another prominent feature is sinus disease and polyp formation and associated aspirin sensitivity, and it can actually have a very important obesity component, both that exacerbates the disease and is associated with its presentation. So now I'd like to show you a video sort of putting some of these concepts together. The majority of adult patients with asthma have T2 high asthma, which is characterized by increased levels of type 2 inflammation in the airways. Mediators of type 2 inflammation include eosinophils, mast cells, Th2 cells that produce the cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, IL-C2s, and IgE-producing B cells. Th2 cells are a subpopulation of CD4-positive T cells, which secrete IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13 and stimulate the type 2 response. During an immune response, IL-4 and IL-13 play an important role in the class switching of B cells to produce IgE and drive the trafficking of eosinophils to sites of inflammation. Mast cell proliferation is promoted by IL-13. IL-5 mediates the differentiation of eosinophils in bone marrow. At the tissue level, eosinophils trafficked by IL-4 and IL-13 to sites of inflammation contribute to airway remodeling and potential loss of lung function. IL-13 also affects smooth muscle cells, contributing to bronchoconstriction that leads to airway hyperresponsiveness. IL-13 also contributes to increased mucus production. Dupilumab is a fully human monoclonal antibody that binds to the shared alpha subunit of the IL-4 receptor and therefore inhibits IL-4 and IL-13 signaling. IL-4 and IL-13 are key and central drivers of type 2 inflammation that also play a role in other type 2 conditions, including atopic dermatitis, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis, eosinophilic esophagitis, paragonodularis, and chronic urticaria. By inhibiting IL-4 and IL-13 signaling, type 2 inflammation is reduced, allowing lung function to improve. All right. So that leads us to this next portion that, and, um, that I'd like to talk about is really the immunology of asthma. And I think we have these biologics at our disposal because we've really developed a much more in-depth understanding of the, uh, the immunology. And you can see from these, from these kinds of slides, which you probably have seen many at this meeting, it's very complex. And really, I think one of the, the take-home messages is the, the airway epithelium is the sort of one of the master orchestrators of the process because the airway epithelium is, is really subject to environmental insults, whether it's allergen, 
microbio, um, um, microbes, pollutants, and other irritants that lead to this inflammatory cascade. And it can go a couple of different ways. It can certainly go, I'm going to see if I can do my pointer here. On the one side, through TSLP and IL-25, can lead very much to this type 2 inflammation we've been talking about, really through dendritic cells, activation of Th2 T cells, and these ILC2s we were talking about, really to lead to activation of mast cells, eosinophils, and bring in really this, this profound inflammation through IL-4, 5, and 13. On the flip side, some of these same mediators, TSLP in particular and IL-33, can bring in other mediators such as TGF-beta, we see IL-1, IL-8, and really manifest this sort of non-type 2 or non-eosinophilic inflammation, really characterized more by the neutrophil, or in some cases, really no inflammation at all. So depending on really the direction of the, uh, of the inflammation really determines what inflammatory phenotype your patient has and really what kind of asthma they have. So type 2 low asthma, I think, really represents an important unmet need. Um, and one kind of type 2, type 2 low asthma is neutrophilic. And we know that airway epithelial cells produce cytokines that stimulate Th17 cells. And they're the ones that really attract the neutrophil to the, to the site. But Th1 cells are also stimulated by innate uh, stimuli at the airway epithelial level to drive this inflammation as well. And when I say neutrophilic predominance, I'm talking about sputum BAL neutrophilia anywhere from 40 to 60%, associated with oxidative stress, chronic infection, smoking, and even a high-fat diet, generally poorer response to corticosteroids, higher association with fixed airflow obstruction, and then there's an infection component that also comes in because we, we don't want to forget about the microbiome and, of course, particular uh, bacteria or potentially viruses that can set up a, a chronic infection uh, situation. As I mentioned, there's also a posse granulocytic form of type 2 low asthma, and there's really no evidence of eosinophils or neutrophils considered to be really non- or low-inflammatory. And I would say this is probably the, the least well-understood subphenotype. Um, what we do know is there is airflow limitation that results because of structural changes that occur in the airway, this uncoupling from airway inflammation. And so we think more about collagen deposition, smooth muscle proliferation, hypertrophy, hyperplasia. There still is hyperresponsiveness, which of course we know is a characteristic of asthma, and thought to be potentially steroid insensitive. This is a 14-year-old male with asthma and recurrent exacerbations who's had asthma since four to six years of age, symptoms on most days, nocturnal awakenings weekly, three exacerbations in the last year requiring oral prednisone, no hospitalizations, and other atopic diseases including allergic rhinitis and atopic dermatitis. Uh, he's on high-dose ICS lava, intranasal steroids, and Montelukast. On exam, evidence of modern atopic dermatitis, no evidence of polyps, chest exam normal, sat oxygen saturation 99%, and has also concomitant allergic rhinitis. So what would the next steps be? Decision-making process. Confirm the diagnosis of asthma. Is he taking his medication regularly? Is his inhaler technique optimal? What about lung function? And can symptoms be explained by ongoing inflammation, T2 biomarkers, or airflow obstruction? So does this patient have other factors contributing to his difficult-to-control asthma? And what other, what other data would be helpful in assessing next steps? So at this point, I'd like to turn uh, the, uh, the talk over to my good friend and colleague, Dr. Bacarrier, who will uh, continue moving forward. Thanks, Len. Great. Thanks, Monica. So 
you know, we, we've now set the stage for the underlying biology and pathophysiology. Now let's let's try to get even a little closer to the patient and and first define some terms up front because I, I think it's it's pretty remarkable that if we took another poll around the room and asked folks to define these three states, we'd get a pretty variable set of definitions. So I think when we talk about uncontrolled asthma, we're not speaking of severity, we're talking about really symptom burden. We're talking about how often symptoms occur, how often exacerbations occur, and how bothered patients are with their asthma. And this can occur in both mild, moderate, or severe patients. And it's also important to recognize that Patients can have moderate and severe disease, but be well controlled with appropriate therapy. We are in no way um, suggesting that everybody with asthma has uncontrolled disease. We actually want this number as low as, as is possible. But one of the more important distinctions we have to make clinically is between patients who have difficult to treat asthma and those who have legitimately severe asthma. And when they walk into your office the first time, it isn't always so clear which of these two descriptors is most apt. Difficult to treat asthma is patients whose asthma is still not meeting the goals of care. They're still uncontrolled despite medium to high dose inhaled corticosteroids. But that persistent uncontrolled state isn't necessarily due to asthma biology. Maybe it's due to incorrect diagnosis. Maybe it's due to incorrect inhaler technique, poor adherence, or under-recognized or under-managed comorbidities. And if those factors were identified and improved, the asthma would improve along with it. It's really important to differentiate that from a patient who has severe asthma, who is somebody who has had all of those other factors assessed and optimally managed, has had their asthma optimally managed, at least with medium to high dose ICS with LABA, their contributory factors are well treated, um, and they're still not meeting the goals, or if you ever attempt to decrease that therapy, the asthma becomes uncontrolled again. So they're subtly different, but they're really, it's an important distinction to make because the way you would approach a difficult to treat asthmatic would be different than somebody who has biologically severe asthma. So if we have a patient presenting with the asthma symptom complex, as we all know, none of these are pathognomonic of the disease. Every one of these has its own extensive differential diagnosis. So symptomatic despite high-dose inhaled therapy, one option is it's not asthma at all. And, you know, that's, that's to me, the first lesson our fellows need to learn is the patient doesn't have asthma till we're convinced they have asthma. Doesn't matter who they came from or where they came from. Reestablish confidence that your asthma diagnosis is the right diagnosis. And once you're convinced it's asthma, the next most common reason patients don't do well with asthma is that the medicines that we use, which are really very effective, are either not being used not being used optimally, or, or there's an inhaler technique issue. Every week, there's a new inhaler. They're all a little different. Patients are really not consistently instructed on how to use these well. Mm -hmm. They develop bad habits, 
everything in the world can lead to poor outcomes just because the medicines which should work aren't being used, aren't being accessed, or there are other issues. And if those are, are really in place and you've thought about the comorbid conditions, then you think about symptoms due to ongoing airway, inflammation, and how much of this is due to persistent airflow obstruction. On the right is a reminder, this group doesn't need that reminder, that there is indeed a extensive differential diagnosis that you should at least work through. Doesn't, not everything has to be ruled out to the nth degree, but it all needs to be thought about because there's a lot of patients out there who look like they have asthma, but they also have one of these additional factors that without addressing them, we just won't do as well for our patients. And then we need to set goals and help our patients realize what asthma control should look like. Asthmatics as a group have exceptionally low expectations for how well their asthma can be managed. Exceptionally low. And it's our job to help them change that. We tell them that we want to improve their symptom control their lung function, reduce exacerbations, reduce rescue meds, minimize side effects of medicines, keep them away from urgent care and emergent care. I, I, I would venture to guess that most of your patients expect to have an exacerbation every year. That's their expectation. And we should get rid of that. An exacerbation is a failure of therapy in the majority of cases. That should not be the norm. We've, we've learned pretty substantially over time that oral corticosteroids are our enemy right now. They're our patient's enemy in this disease. We've learned that cumulative st oral steroid exposure carries substantial long-term risk in a variety of organ systems. So we really want to get away from oral corticosteroid use, and that means preventing exacerbations. But again, most patients aren't really too afraid of prednisone. They kind of like it. It makes them feel better quickly. It's cheap. Um, and it's, it's their go-to. It, it doesn't let them down very often. So we, we really have to start interrupting that thought process that they have, forming a partnership with them, being available to them to help make good decisions so that um, we keep them away from urgent care or the emergency department because an asthmatic who enters either of those locations, I think is required to leave with prednisone, whether they needed it or not. So our goal is to do everything possible to keep them out of those situations. Here's a, another <coughs> approach to, to what we've been talking about. This is taken from the GINA Severe Asthma Guide. Um, I'm, a, I'm very fortunate to have been a member of the GINA Science Committee. And I, we spent an awful lot of time really trying to come up with strategies to help our, our colleagues differentiate between difficult-to-treat asthma in the upper left and severe asthma in the upper right. And it's about assessing all of the underlying factors that we talked about. We've talked about some of these, but there are others, including smoking, environmental exposure, use of medications that may make asthma less responsive to therapy, like beta blockers, or may exacerbate asthma in and of themselves, such as non-steroidals. The overuse of Saba is a, is a real problem, and um, having ongoing airway inflammation despite therapy is an indicator for need for more. 
We want to optimize management. That starts with education. We need to set goals and help our patients really understand this. Most patients who present with difficult to treat asthma, if you ask them to bring in all the medicines they've been prescribed in the last year or two, there would be a shopping bag full of inhalers of all colors, some half-empty pill bottles, at least one bottle of some prednisone tablets, and who knows what else. Um, we need to pare down their regimens. We need to teach them the difference between controllers and relievers. We need to teach them how to use whatever inhaler works best for them. There's no one perfect inhaler. Some people love dry powders. Some will never figure out how to use them correctly, and we should be using pressurized inhalers. So we really need to customize our care, not just our, the, med, the biologics that we'll talk about, but also the other medications. Treat the comorbidities. Deal with um, factors that have non-pharmacologic intervention, such as smoking cessation, diet, exercise, weight loss, flu shot, COVID vaccine, breathing exercises, allergen avoidance. And if they're still not controlled, despite all of this, we consider them to have severe asthma. But really, before we start tinkering with the medications, figure out what they're actually using and how they're actually using them. I'd say half the patients who, who present to clinic with uncontrolled asthma, if you pay attention to this slide and this slide alone, you'll make a huge difference without needing to take out a prescription pad or worse yet, a prior authorization form. Work on non-adherence. Patients are not adherent for a variety of reasons, some very well-intentioned, some legitimate forgetfulness, some disbelief in the disease, some, you know, a really substantial fear of the medications or their side effects. If you ask patients, they'll be honest with you. But if you don't ask them, they won't volunteer any of this. So really sort of prompt that. And I think you know, for respiratory subspecialists, we should always be reviewing inhaler technique. And we do it at every visit. We've done it in clinical trials at every visit. <clears throat> and it's amazed me how exceptionally well-instructed patients forget, change, come up with their own variation on a theme. There are right ways to use inhalers and there are much less correct ways. And we should really optimize that before we scale up therapy. So as we think about m management strategies, you know, where do we go from here? We've now confirmed that the patient has severe uncontrolled asthma. What do we do clinically to help improve their lives? And this is the, the treatment algorithm for GINA in adolescents and adults. And what we're really looking at and discussing this morning is the patient with type um, uh, with step five uh, needs for care. And, you know, the, the first thing is that we should be seeing these patients. These patients should all be referred for subspecialty care. That includes all the things we talked about and then some pharmacologic and diagnostic maneuvers, including the addition of a llama to see if that makes a difference. Phenotypic assessment, as Dr. Kraft had mentioned, consideration of biologics, and now we'll, we'll be able to discuss a variety of those, and consideration of, of using high-dose inhaled corticosteroid for Motorol. Monica, what do you think about sort of when we're at this point? What order would you begin to um, approach these 
these various uh, options in step five? Sure. And there's, there are several sort of all fit into the squares you can see. Well, at that point, you're, you're confident that the diagnosis is asthma. I think that has to go without saying, and you've done the appropriate you know, pulmonary function testing and, and clinical history um, to really, and response to treatment, inhale treatment to really give you a sense that this is asthma. I'm, I think before we get into some of the, you know, expensive biologics, it's really important to assess the comorbid conditions. We've, you've heard a little bit about that. Not only the allergic comorbid conditions, but things like reflux, sleep apnea, um, uh, obesity, um, and any upper airway dysfunction that could be a, a consequence of that, and sinus disease, and make sure these are all addressed appropriately. Because that's where this uncontrolled asthma versus severe asthma comes in. The expectation is, is that you've done all that before you move on to biologics. And so those are the kinds of things that can really reduce medication requirement. And you may not ultimately even require, the patient may not require a biologic if that's done. And then as that's going, to conduct the biomarker testing that we've been talking about and really try to sort out what kind of asthma you think a patient has. And at that point, you would be positioned, assuming that they're still requiring additional therapy, to, um, to consider a, a biologic at that point. Exactly. I think that's, that's really a thoughtful way of going at this. And I think Gina helps <clears throat> lay this out. And, you know, the one other point I want to make, I, I mentioned it earlier, but you can't say it often enough. We have alternative therapies to what we're going to talk about in terms of the biologics. They vary in their efficacy, um, but they're relatively safe. But one point we've, we've now added to the GINA recommendations is that low-dose oral corticosteroids are a last resort. We've really gone anti-chronic oral steroids because we're now in an era where we have therapies that should make them exceptionally infrequently used, and I think we do our patients a long-term service by staying away from them. So right now, we're in a really good place to take care of patients with severe type 2 asthma. We have targeted approaches. We have these six asthma biologics, FDA-approved, three of them down to age 6, two of them down to age 12, one for adults only. Um, they target multiple pathways in that very complex figure that Dr. Kraft showed earlier. We have dupilumab, which targets IL-4 and IL-13 by blocking the shared receptor that these use. We have omalizumab, which binds to free IgE. Free IgE can't bind to its receptor on the surfaces of mast cells or basophils, becomes biologically inert and reduces type 2 inflammation and the downstream effects following allergen exposure. We have benralizumab, an antibody that binds to the receptor for IL-5 on the surface of eosinophils and directly kills the eosinophil. We have mepolizumab and reslizumab, which both bind soluble IL-5 before it binds to its receptor. That's effectively a starvation program for eosinophils, leads the eosinophils to lose their dominant source of uh, of life-sustaining properties, so the eosinophils fade away and, and die. And the most recent uh, kit on the block is tezepelumab, an antibody that acts a little more upstream at, at the epithelial level against the, the, the cytokine TSLP um, and reduces uh, much of the asthma downstream effects. These are variable 
in terms of their dosing frequency. They're all given parenterally, resolizumab IV, the other five sub-Q. Um, most of these are now approved for home administration. We can talk about that versus in-office in the discussion period if that's of interest to folks. But an important point when we're trying to decide between these is recognizing that several of these carry indication and efficacy for other related conditions. So you give them for asthma, you get a benefit in a second or a third or a fourth condition, such as dupilumab having efficacy in atopic dermatitis, chronic rhinosinusitis, nasal polyps, eosinophilic esophagitis, perigonodularis, Omalizumab is effective in chronic spontaneous urticaria and nasal polyps. Mepolizumab, if there's concomitant EGPA or chronic rhinosinusitis or hypereosinophilic syndrome. So if you have a patient who has complex disease with asthma plus one of these, maybe your decision is swayed based on your ability to improve two conditions with one um, prescription. So what do these biologics do? And we're not going to review each of these in detail. But suffice it to say that they are all very comparable in their ability to reduce the rate of exacerbations compared to placebo-treated patients when added on to conventional therapy. The magnitude of that effect ranges from about 40% reduction to about 70% reduction. Three of them have shown um, impressive abilities to reduce maintenance oral corticosteroid dosing, Omalizumab is a little less robust at that. Resolizumab and tezepilumab have not been demonstrated to be able to reduce chronic oral steroids. They all improve quality of life in a clinically meaningful way. And their FEV1 effects are pretty variable, ranging from plus minus in omalizumab and resolizumab's cases, modest effects for mepo and benralizumab, and more substantial effects for dupilumab and tezepilumab. So, Monica, why don't you give us some sense as to how, based on having these six agents and our phenotyping approaches, how one might choose between these for sure, a given patient? Sure, sure. This is where it can be complicated, and there's not always one right answer. So we'll, we'll help, uh, we'll, we'll give you some, some guidelines as to how to tease this out in the clinical arena. So as we mentioned, of course, baseline assessment is key. You obviously want to make sure they have asthma. And, and as, you know, Dr. Bacarrier mentioned, I think adherence just can't be overestimated. Um, I can't tell you how many million-dollar workups I have foregone because it was simply really an adherence or inhaler technique issue. Um, we, I mentioned a little bit about comorbidities, really key to address those and manage those as well as possible because that really can increase medication requirement and, and really uh, have, a, have an impact on the level of control of the, patient, of, of the patient's asthma. So I can't emphasize that enough either. Then, of course, moving to the biomarkers we have available at our disposal, bloody eosinophils, exhaled nitric oxide, and IgE. And it's now easier to do exhaled NO, for instance, in the office compared to how it used to be. It's a little less expensive, so it's much more accessible now. I know there's still some challenges around reimbursement and things like that, and so we can, we can sort of discuss the, the pros and cons of that if anyone is interested. And then really the bottom line is to use this assessment to treat asthma with precision medicine approaches based on the endotype and biomarkers. 
And so this is a, a one approach you might consider. This is from a review that I was part of uh, putting together in, uh, in the journal Jackie in Practice. And, um, and so first you start out looking at the bloody eosinophils. And in this case, we're looking at less than 150. Okay. So already you're starting to wonder, does this patient really have a T2 high phenotype or not? And, and then the exhaled nitric oxide can be really helpful because, in fact, if it's elevated, so anything greater than 20 to 25 parts per billion, per billion is significant, then you start to think, well, maybe there is a component of type 2 inflammation. But then the question about allergy comes in, and is there sensitivity to an inhaled perennial allergen? And you can do that by skin testing or blood testing. So, in fact, if there is, then you may consider an IL-413 biologic, such as dupilumab, you can go with omalizumab in this case, or tezepelumab. So you have three different choices, interestingly. So like I said, there's not always a, uh, a one correct answer. If you really don't see any, any uh, sensitivity to uh, allergen, then you really can, you can still sit, stay with the dupilumab or go with the tezepelumab. So that's one, one way to approach it. Let's say the pheno is less than 25 parts per billion. Then again, thinking about that sensitivity to allergen, if it's present, you still have the option to go with an anti-IgE, omalizumab, or the anti-TSLP, tezepelumab, because you're still looking um, at a, a, a type of asthma that's driven by allergy. Now, if you don't see any of those things, low, low peripheral uh, eosinophils, low pheno, no response to, uh, no sensitivity to allergen, thankfully, there's still an option, and you can go with in, uh, with tezepelumab, which has been shown to have effects in really type 2 low asthma. Not quite as robust as type 2 high, but definitely there. And so it's nice that we have something, you know, in our armamentarium now where we can think about uh, treating type 2 low asthma. Now, there's, this is complicated, so I'd like to take you through it. So let's think about uh, eosinophils that are, that are, are between, between 150 and 1500. So in the setting of at this point, you'd like to have pheno and really think about what biomarker do you think is the most important here and what's driving the asthma. So if you have high blood EOs um, to pheno, so you think EOs are sort of the driver as opposed to, to pheno, you'd really probably want to go an anti-IL-5 route first. You also have the option for uh, the anti-TSLP. But if you have, if you think pheno is really the predominant biomarker, maybe bloody eosinophils are on the lower side, say 200, and pheno is very high, say 50, 60 parts per billion, then you might really be thinking about this, the dupilumab, the IL-413. You can also consider these others, as you, and, and, and as I mentioned, there's really no right answer. And with this one, you, you've got lots of choices. It's sort of good and bad to have lots of choices. I think whatever you choose, you'd like to give it about a four to six month trial, and you'd have to really decide on what to measure for your patient based on their own history. If they're a frequent exacerbator, that's going to be an endpoint that you're going to care about. And sometimes six months can give you that information. Sometimes it's hard if they only have one exacerbation a year, for instance. So you could also look at lung function, as we heard that some of these biologics really have some nice impact on lung function and symptom burden as well. Now, the other part here is consider the presence activity of T2 comorbid disease entities associated with severe disease. Like we talked about, if the patient has atopic dermatitis, you're going to head down the IL-413 route, the dupilumab route. If there's chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, you've got choices. You can go dupilumab, omalizumab, or an anti-IL-5 or IL-5 receptor. And lastly, if there is sensitivity to allergen, once again, 
lots of choices here. That really helps drive the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, really the treatment options. Um, and you have several to choose from. So you realize that it can be a little bit complicated. So happy to really discuss this in more detail afterwards. Now, the one caveat I would say, if you have a patient who has very high eosinophils, 1,500 or above, and I even go even a little lower, when, when they're even between 500 and 1,000, I'll sort of take notice, and again, thinking that the eosinophil is the, the main <clears throat> driver here, I would, I would go the anti-IL-5 route first. And, really, and then also think about eGPA, hyper-eosinophilic syndromes, especially if you're getting up to the 1,500 range. IL-413 dupilumab can, can cause a slight elevation in eosinophils transiently because of the inhibition of eataxin. And so therefore, I would, it, the best choice of action is really to address this, the eosinophils first, even if the pheno's up. The other caveat is if you have a patient who's on oral corticosteroids, and many of the biomarkers that you would want to measure are, could very well be reduced. So you're not going to see a T2 signal necessarily in that patient. What I can, what you, you still want to do your biomarker assessment. And one other thought on that is you're going to want to get, you want to, you want to check these biomarkers on multiple occasions, not just one, to get a real sense of what this patient is manifesting because you may see some variability. And therefore, you'd still conduct your assessment. And then you would consider, you could consider an anti-IL-5. Anti-IL-413 dupilumab has FDA approval really for this indication for patients where you think there could be a T2 signal based on some history, um, but yet you're not really able to measure those biomarkers because of oral corticosteroids. And so that would be another a caveat to, uh, to, to remember. All right, I'm going to turn it back over to you to continue, uh, to sure. continue on. Sure. So, you know, we've gone through the drugs, we've gone through the strategies, but we thought it was important to go back a little bit to basics and, and remind ourselves about this sort of, this genus circle of review, assess, and adjust. Because none of this stuff occurs in a vacuum, and none of this is a one-time, you're done type of process. We always want to keep spinning this wheel and going around these three approaches because things change over time. Patients change over time. And we need to be cognizant of that. We need to readjust, reassess, um, and figure out if we're making a difference with any of the maneuvers we make. These therapies are effective, but they don't work in everybody every time. So we don't want to just say, all right, well, we picked the biologic. We're going to be good to go. There are still many other strategies. We want to optimize our comorbidities. And it's really, you know, taking us into this era of personalized care. And, and this is a prime example in the respiratory space of how we can do this. It's not just about the medications, and it's certainly not one size fits all. So let's go back to the case that we saw earlier, 14-year-old boy with asthma recurrent exacerbations. Is this, a, is this young man a candidate for a biologic? And the answer is maybe so. We can consider steroid sparing options. In, in adolescence, we really don't have very many. Um, we want to improve his quality of life. We want to evaluate for comorbidities. And we want to assess his biomarker profile to figure out if he has eosinophilic disease, allergic disease, type 2 disease, none of the above. So, you know, he's 14. We saw that we have a, a variety of, of agents available, 12 and above. But what if he were even a little younger? And, and we, we bring this out um, just to, to 
sort of give your attention to a poster we'll be presenting tomorrow about the extended effects of dupilumab in 6 to 11-year-old children who've now been treated for two years with therapy that really shows persistence of effect and exacerbation reduction and improvement in lung function. So we're getting more evidence on the pediatric side, on the adolescent side, and on the adult side about the efficacy and the safety of long-term use of biologics in the management of severe asthma. So when we see a patient, these are complex discussions and these are complex um, uh, interactions that we have with our patients. And one approach we like to really think about is this concept of shared decision-making. That's the label that we've now put on what I think many of us have been doing our whole careers. It's called talking to the patient. It's called putting all the cards on the table, saying these are your options, these are the pluses, these are the minuses, which of these factors really fits with your goals, your preferences, and really gives the patient and the family the opportunity to contribute to their care. It's not telling them you make the choice. It's presenting them with what we believe are reasonable options and letting them have their buy-in because you saw that, that table of all the properties of these agents. And it's remarkable how some people focus on one aspect, some people are only, only care about how often is it administered. I want to give myself the fewest shots a year as possible. Some folks don't care how often it's administered. They want to know how long has it been on the market? How safe is it? They want to know that things that may matter more to one than to the other. So it's really a, a structured approach to giving patients the ability to contribute to their care. All righty, so just a, a few words about shared decision-making, because I, I really think, while I think most of us have been doing this, there's been a lot of work that's gone into codifying how we all might do it even a little better. It's about focusing on choice rather than change. It's about really have, having patients be active participants in their health care. We're not limited to the use of patient decision aids. They help. There are online tools such as the one that CHEST has that's in the lower right that's really great that patients can go through at home, get a lot of information, and then come to you prepared for an advanced discussion on how to choose. It's about engaging the patients and how much they do or don't want to be involved. I've had patients say, that's too much pressure. You tell me what the right answer is. If that's what they want, that's what we do. But I don't start there. That's, that's sort of the last resort option. And then we want to monitor and follow these patients up. If we're going to start one of these therapies, we got to know what we've done and what's happening. So we want to see them back with a reasonable degree of frequency. Ask about symptoms and activity limitation. Use validated questionnaires. Review exacerbations since the last visits, especially oral steroid use. What are the barriers? And um, those are getting meds, using meds, how are the injections going, and make sure that they have uh, free and open communication with the healthcare team. So I think what we've seen over the last um, 45 minutes or so is a real summary of what are really important advances in the treatment and understanding of both the heterogeneity of moderate to severe asthma and the real clinical importance of identifying type 2 inflammation as a key treatable trait. 
We now are very fortunate, and our patients are even more fortunate, that we have a variety of highly specific and effective biologics that target type 2 inflammation, available for children and adults, that really provide an unprecedented level of asthma control. And these reduce exacerbations, improve quality of life, often are improving lung function, and give patients the confidence and and freedom back from asthma that many of them have been waiting for for years or decades. So um, we really do thank you for your attention. I think uh, we definitely have time for questions. So Monica, do you want to start off by answering a question about, is there a quantitative difference between uncontrolled asthma and difficult to treat asthma? Uncontrolled and difficult to treat. Oh, yeah. that, that's interesting. Um, I, you know, I, 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 they're part of a spectrum to me. Um, so uncontrolled is really the, the, as you assess control, whether you use it through the asthma control test or the asthma control questionnaire, you've, you've identified that this patient is poorly controlled. So you've got that to start with. Then you sort of want to decide, is this, is it severe asthma? Is it difficult to treat? And so therefore, that's your starting point is to assess control. And then you're going to be looking at lung function, exacerbation history, all of those things. And then from there, you can decide, have the comorbidities been, been addressed? Is the patient adherent? Are they on the right medication regimen? Those types of things. And then if they've been on oral steroids, if you've tried to, ta do, they, do they achieve any level of control with steroids? And then if you taper them off, do they flare again? Those are kind of key issues to try to understand whether they're really difficult to treat or is their asthma just very severe. So it's those sort of pieces that we talked about earlier that I think help you sort that out. But first, you have to determine whether they're controlled or not. And that's the, that's the, the kind of the, the beginning of the assessment. I don't know if yeah, you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They're not mutually exclusive terms. There is some overlap. But I think our, our key is you want to figure out which it is. Because difficult to treat means you have sinus disease to deal with. Once you've dealt with all those things and you're still uncontrolled, then you take a different path thinking about advanced therapeutics and the like. So right. they're, they're similar, but certainly not the same. Right. Well, I have a question here. It's interesting. Can you comment on the role of the airway smooth muscle? And I think because we've been talking so much about inflammation, and we did mention the posse granulocytic subphenotype that really is really we think has to do with alterations in structural cells. But at the end of the day, the smooth muscle really is responsible for the bronchoconstriction that we see. But I don't know if you want to comment a little bit more on, we know a lot more about smooth muscle now than I think we've appreciated in the past. Yeah, I'll make a couple of comments, but you're the, you're the expert in the room, so I'd be a, a fool to try to go too far here. But I, I, we know that the muscle's involved. We know that the, that the muscle is not an innocent bystander mm -hmm. in all of this. We know that smooth muscle has receptors for multiple of these type 2 cytokines. And with several of the biologics... If you look at lung function response, it gets better very quickly. And it's hard to imagine that that's due to almost anything other than some smooth muscle effect. Exactly. And in inhibiting those cytokines like IL-13 has some direct effects on smooth muscle contractility. And so therefore, if you can inhibit that, which you can, um, you can have some direct effects on smooth muscle. And of course, the, the elephant in the room is what about bronchial thermoplasty and smooth muscle, right? Because that's a technique that was really developed to reduce the amount of smooth muscle in really the more proximal airways. And, you know, I think that there is 
a potential role for BT. It depends on who you talk to. And I think one of the challenges is we don't exactly know the best candidate for BT. And we have other choices now with regards to biologics that we tend to go to first. However, there are patients who don't have a lot of inflammation to target or perhaps have failed several biologics that one might consider um, for, for bronchial thermoplasty. Interestingly, our, our good friend and colleague Mario Castro has done a lot of work in this area and actually published that even those patients with eosinophils tend to do well with BT, interestingly. So I think it, the, the, the advice today is to consider it in some of those circumstances, perhaps after a really thorough assessment of, of phenotype, and if you feel like you don't have a target with the biologics, but it needs to be done at a center where there's a lot of volume that has expertise and under the guise of a registry or a clinical trial is really what the latest guidelines um, recommend. All right. So, so I spent a, a fair amount of time uh, talking about corticosteroid stewardship. Mm-hmm. Do, do we know anything or you want to comment on the cost-benefit of the targeted biologics versus uh, a minimal dose of oral steroids? Yeah, that's a really good question. We know, we know prednisone is cheap, right? And even in those patients, sometimes I'll change them if I think that they're steroid insensitive. They may do better with Medrol, so maybe we'll try that. But really emerging data, especially if you look at some work from David Price and his group in the UK, that even a single course of, uh, of oral steroids increases risk of sepsis, for instance, and the cumulative lifetime dose, or, or over a year, have really been now looked at in terms of, of really understanding uh, a patient's risk for some of the really significant side effects, whether it's osteoporosis, cataracts, di- uh, blood glucose abnormalities, uh, and skin thinning, etc. cetera. And, um, and so certainly even five, 500 to 1,000 milligrams over the course of a year which sounds like a lot, but if you have a frequent exacerbator and if you add them up, if you add up the milligrams, they, they add up quickly, really puts your patient at incredibly high risk of not only sepsis and, and, and death, but also some of these other comorbid conditions. So as, as, as Dr. Bakari was saying earlier in the conversation, I think oral steroids are a failure. I think we should do everything we can to avoid them because the more we start to study um, the effects uh, the, the more astounding the data become. I'm not sure if you have any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I would fully support that. And, and I think I would direct folks to look at the studies with several biologics that demonstrate their ability to reduce the dose of oral steroids in patients who require them daily or on alternate days. But the other thing you'll see in those studies is that it does more than reduce the dose. It actually cuts the exacerbation in half, rate in half, on top of the reduced dose. So they're on less prednisone and still having fewer exacerbations. So it's not purely a, let's just give them five milligrams less of prednisone. It actually works better than prednisone ever hoped to. So there's, there's a benefit well above and beyond the steroid sparing effect. There's actually a disease control improvement effect that might be um, even more valuable. Because what does that mean? So you reduce them from 10 to 5 a day. That doesn't seem a lot. But if you reduce their exacerbations by half, you're saving them 200, 300 milligrams a pop for each exacerbation. And that might even do them more good in the long term than those than the few daily uh, milligrams that get spared. Good points. All good points. Um, 
the question that always comes up that none of us know how to answer exactly, so I'll give it to you, um, Monica. <laughs> Thank you. Can we wean patients off asthma meds if they've been well controlled with no exacerbations? Oh, yes, we presumably were. under the cover of a biologic. Exactly. This has been the big, big debate, and I've had it actually in other sessions here at this meeting. Because ultimately, isn't that what you'd love to see? Is that is your patients can actually reduce their other inhaled controller meds? Wouldn't that be nice? We know high dose ICS have have side effects as well. Not quite as dramatic as oral corticosteroids, but over time, they're relevant. Now, the question is, can you renew that biologic if your patient no longer takes controller meds? And frankly, I'm not sure what your experience has been. My patients will, they'll do what they do. They, they will, if they feel better, they will stop those controllers or taper them, whether or not I recommend it. They'll, they'll just do it. And uh, in fact, one of the challenges is when it comes time to renew, sometimes insurance carriers won't do it if they can see that the patient hasn't been refilling their inhaled controller medications. So we're in a little bit of a, a quandary right now. So what I think we need is actually some data, and there actually are studies going on right now that from, from uh, the, the, the manufacturers of, of biologics to look at how you can taper the inhaled meds and how safe is it. And, uh, and say, so I think those data are really going to be able to help us, you know, justify this with carriers um, and so that we can continue these patients on biologics. Because one of the fears is, well, if they're off their inhaled controllers, they can't get their biologics renewed, they're going to be in a very difficult space in terms of risk for exacerbations, which we don't want. So we're, so at this point, I think when it comes time to renew, at this point, sometimes you have to ask your patients to go back on them for a period of time, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but um, I think in the future, as we have more data, we may have some more leeway there. We're coming to the end of our time together. Any questions from the group here in, here live that folks didn't want to type in with their thumbs? Okay, gentlemen, runner, come, if you could use the... I sent in a question. I guess you didn't get it, but I recommend assessing biomarkers in all asthma patients. I don't wait till they're severe. I think it gives you prognostic in information, and it may even guide, uh, say, our newer recommendations for the mild asthma patients. What do you think about that? Full agreement. Yes, absolutely. And I do that. Full agreement. I do that. I'm glad you brought it up. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, yep. very, very much so. Please. A question. Are there any um, biomarkers in development or that we have to follow dosing or duration of treatment with biologics? Hopefully. Um, it, the biomarkers to evaluate treatment response are even more complicated than trying to figure out who to treat in the first place. Dr. Kraft and I are both part of a large NIH trial that's trying to do just that with a variety of new therapies, trying to come up with these um, responsive biomarkers that really tell you if you're doing a good job or, or you know, where you should be going. I think that's one of the next frontiers, but we're, we're still quite a ways from right. that. You can use pheno with uh, dupilumab, so that helps in terms of, of, of seeing that decrease. So that's something we can do now. We're looking at eosinophil peroxidase, which is something that is, uh, uh, you can measure by nasal swab, looking at degranulated eosinophils that are activated. And to see how that works is more of a monitoring, a predictive as well as a monitoring biomarker. So that's under development. We're looking at urinary homocysteine, which is also a reflection of eosinophilic inflammation, obviously in urine, that um, we're seeing how it holds up 
during the treatment phase with, a, with, with an intervention versus the prediction of response. So we've got a couple of those under development uh, as well. And some of us are interested in club cell secretory protein 16 and IL-6 or two other biomarkers that you'll see a paper come out. Actually, I think it's in press in the Blue Journal. Um, Shannon uh, Lee is first author, looking at the combination leading, that, that kind of help you define phenotypes but aren't necessarily in the monitoring space yet. So there's a lot of activity, because I agree, we need some more tools, I think, for, for monitoring in particular. All righty. Well, I think it's uh, time to turn you folks loose on the meeting, per se. Um, we wish you all well. Thank you for coming bright and early, yes. um, being a great engaged group, and hope this was helpful for both you and your patients. Right. Thank Thanks, you Monica. so much. Thank you. Thank you, Len. Thanks for joining us. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ATS 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.